This is Michelle Ruff, the voice of Jill Valentine. And when I'm not stranded on the Queen Zenobia, I listen to the Crimson Head Elder podcast. Can you see that area behind me beneath the red tinted sky? That is what's left of Raccoon City. Our platoon is cut off. No survivors left. gonna die. Wait, don't shoot! Down! I lost all my men because of her! All is lost. Cries of agony. Stars. Unity breeds power. I'm Reva DePala, the voice of Rebecca Chambers. Welcome to the Crimson Head Elder Podcast. I'm Ed Smarin, the voice of Barry Burton. Welcome to the Crimson Head Elder Podcast. Good evening, and welcome to the Overlook Hotel. Tonight, and for one night only, hosting Crimson Head Elder's podcast. In attendance this Halloween night, we have the stars of Resident Evil Dead Aim. In the Gold Ballroom, we host Resident Evil composer, narrator and actor Raj Ramaya. The voice of Bruce McGiven, Mr. Ramaya will be performing the official premiere outside of Japan of his original and unreleased Resident Evil Dead Aim theme, which you will hear exclusively at the finality of tonight's proceedings. If you can now make your way up to room 237, the actor from Morpheus D. Duval, Angus Waycott, is waiting for you. town in the United States was destroyed when the substance known as the T-Virus leaked throughout the town. However, Umbrella, the corporation developing the virus, refused to abort the project. And once again, the threat of biological terror was thrust upon the world. A large amount of T-Virus was stolen three days ago, when a terrorist group hit an umbrella lab in France. Yesterday, one of Umbrella's cruisers was hijacked and contaminated with the same virus. (laughs) 
You have just been listening to the voice of Angus Waycott, actor for Morpheus D. Duval, who now joins me in room 237 for his first ever interview on his performance in Resident Evil Dead Aim. And without further delay, we will begin. First question, which has come in from Alan Wempy Mao. Um, apologies, Alan, if I've not pronounced your, your, your surname correctly. And, and it's a common question. It's one that we're always asked. Angus, were you familiar with the series Resident Evil before you took on this role? No, I wasn't. I hadn't heard of it at all. So w- were you particularly working in voice acting to begin with? Well, um, I had done a, a little bit of voice acting before, um, but I was signed up with a bunch of different agencies in Tokyo who supply their clients with voice actors and models mm. and uh, other people who are used in uh, movie productions and things like that. And so I was used to being asked to do jobs that I'd never done before. And okay. for when um, a video game came up and can you act a a character in a video game, mm-hmm. uh, I said yes, because I said yes to everything in those days. <laughs> okay. And, I mean, at the time, did you find yourself thinking that you might be taking on particular challenges or or did you feel perhaps in the dark slightly uh, with it being the video game genre as opposed to maybe maybe film or television? I can't say that I thought of it as a separate genre at the time. Um I knew the other voice actors who were involved in it because we worked together on other projects before. I knew Raj, um, I knew Clara Connor and uh, Mm. the other people who were involved. So we all talked about it before the job began and uh, I don't think any of us really had much idea of what we were going into, Um, but it just seemed to work itself out in the studio. And that was something that, that Raj mentioned was was how professional yet easygoing every, every, everybody was. I think that's very true, actually. That's a very good point. Mm. It was, there was no sort of pressure in the studio feeling that we had to uh, reach a certain required standard, otherwise it wouldn't be good enough. It was basically everybody was having fun. And also you have to remember that the pr- production people involved were all Japanese, or nearly all Japanese. Yes. And most of them spoke either no English or not much English. Mm. And they weren't in a position to constantly stop and criticise and say, listen, could you do that again? Mm. You know, we might be asked to do something again because it wasn't loud enough or it wasn't clear enough on the tape or something like that. But yeah. basically, we weren't being criticised for our performance, if you like. We had to make that up as we went along. And oh. Well, that's something people are always very interested to know, is that level of direction that you would have received from particular Capcom developers, who in themselves are obviously personalities for the fans as well. So various names are always thrown up, and people ask me whether you had a, you know, a direct relationship, contact with the head producer, with the head director, and any relationship maybe you might have had with the caviar people. Well, there was plenty of contact in terms of everybody being in the same room and yeah. uh, um, uh, and everybody talking to each other. But, you know, you get introduced to a lot of people that uh, you don't know. You're not actually sure who works for Capcom and who yes. works for Caviar. And, yes, there was a certain amount of direction, um, but it wasn't oppressive. I think mm-hmm. because uh, the various voice actors knew each other 
and were having fun, we all sort of sparked off each other. Yeah. And uh, we all uh, picked up how to behave, if you like. Yes. Uh, on microphone from each other. So it wasn't a it wasn't a matter of each person doing his bit individually, and then it's all stitched together later. You know, a lot was done in f fairly lengthy takes. This is interesting because what's coming across now, I don't know if I'm picking up on this correctly, if you would agree, something that definitely I felt and came up with with, Ra with Raj's discussion is that they almost got lucky, Capcom, with the, the, the calibre of actors that they got in with this. Raj was saying how he, in fact, had quite a lot of input into the character of Bruce McGiven so that when he, came up, when, when he turned up on day one, Capcom had very little idea in terms of the character that they wanted. Uh, and, and he had quite a lot of input in terms of how that character developed. Uh, but again, with yourself... Uh, whether they were going to get the sort of voice actors that were professionally capable and, and, and sufficiently sophisticated in their art that they were able to work off each other, uh, it sounds like they, they got quite lucky, Capcom. Uh, well, that may be, may be true. I mean, the, in the event, the uh, video game has turned out to be successful, and so uh, you could say that that's because uh, the actors are, um, are good. Um, I think Raj is right. They didn't have much idea. The mm. uh, production people didn't have much idea. Mm. Uh, Bruce's character sort of makes itself. You know, he's a he's a James Bond type figure. He's, mm. a, he's a goodie, if you like, and uh, and so Morpheus, for that matter, is a baddie. So he mm. also slots straight into the uh, baddie category. Mm. In terms of the Resident Evil world, these are quite unique characters and have certain eccentricities and peculiarities that you don't necessarily see in your all-American hero, even more so for Morpheus, and, and we'll come on to this, that, that even more exaggerated eccentricities. These were not your bog-standard, you know, pre-molded characters that you would normally get with Resident Evil. No. It was uh, it was very much of the actors having to make the character up as they uh, were uh, invited to uh, perform each scene. The characters sort of emerged uh, from um, from the script and from the situation that they were in. Um, when I say that uh, Morpheus was slotted into the baddie type, I mean that is true. But of course, he did have a lot of distinctive characteristics of his own. And I have to say that um, many of those characteristics were not known to me at the time. Um, it, it was presented to me at the beginning as just as a voice job. It wasn't going to take very long. I mean, if I, mm. I think I was probably in the studio for a few days. Um, well, so I think to some extent the char character may have been not made up after my recording was over, that's not correct, but I think it may have been added to, and I think it may have been padded out. Mm. Um, well, it's, it's interesting that you say that, and, and that goes to the heart of a huge debate that, that, that surrounds Morpheus and whether um, he had plastic surgery uh, prior to his transformation. It, it was news to you, I believe, that, the, that, that Morpheus, the character, may have tried to extenuate the, the feminine form. And many of our, our members have actually asked, what was this a, a, a narrative plot point, a character point that, that Capcom brought up with you? So, so, so that, that, that came very much to your surprise, it did. It did come very much to my surprise, yes. Um, um, I can't 
say I was prepared for that in any way. And this, um, by that, I mean, I, I didn't sit down with Capcom people and find myself being talked through a detailed account of uh, what was going to happen to uh, Morpheus in terms of his um, mm. mutation yes. and what his uh, slightly, what turned out to be his rather ambiguous uh, sexuality. Mm. This wasn't discussed with me um, at the beginning. All I knew was that he was going to turn into some kind of strange female. Ah, so so they did bring up the subject of Morpheus transform, transformation, and uh, and did they then talk to you about a change in cadence or a change in in tone of voice, vo- voicing that that post mutated Morpheus? Well, they must have done. Um, I don't have a very clear uh, memory of it, to be honest. Mm. As you know, there isn't a lot of dialogue. Mm. Um, But it kind of, the situation would demand that anyway, you know, that uh, Morpheus in his uh, feminine persona wouldn't speak really quite the Mm. same as in the male persona. So, yes, there was... uh, um, a certain amount of conversation mm. about it. Okay. But, but I don't think, you know, I mean, I wasn't assumed to be an expert. I wasn't assumed to be somebody who understood the game. Yes. I don't think, it, I don't think the Capcom people thought it was particularly important at the time that the various actors uh, should understand everything, that they should do what they're told. That's what, that's yeah. what see, boys I, mostly do. See, listening to you now, I'm wondering whether I'm being sort of sl- slightly naive or, or maybe sort of holding these characters up on a pedestal to be far more realised than they actually are, because I'm wondering, OK, I, I, I accept the, rea- the reality of the situation that you're not portraying Morpheus on on the silver screen, but... In terms of what is the most uh, significant flaw in his character, the, the, you know, the, 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 what makes Morpheus who he is, uh, you know, we, 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 we've talked about his mantra, uh, and I was surprised to hear that, 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 that again, because a question the Oracle Dragon asks is, were, in order to, uh, you know, allow you to better prepare for the role so that you can give a better performance, were you furnished by Capcom with, these, with, these, with his mantra, with these in-game files? And if not, would you agree with me that, that, that for such a considerable character trait, it, it, it almost, to me, it seems very remiss that they didn't bring this up with you? Okay, well, firstly, no, they didn't bring this up with me. Uh, And secondly, yes, I do agree with you that uh, considering the um, significance of the character, it now seems very strange that this stuff wasn't brought up. Mm. Uh, But there are two uh, points in mitigation, if I can put it like that, which, uh, which I would mention. One is that, of course, nobody knew that this video game was going to be successful and popular and that it would still matter to people many years later. Mm. You know, in hindsight, it seems that uh, not enough um, care and preparation went into uh, briefing me, if you like, on what uh, Morpheus was uh, like and what, the, what his role in the game exactly was. Yes. Um, it looks like that now in 2014, but... Uh, Back then, I don't think it was given so much importance. And the other thing, which is huge, mm. is that we were dealing with uh, Japanese production people. Yes. And my spoken Japanese um, at the time was adequate. You know, I could, I could get by in Japanese. Okay. But I wasn't 
anything like fluent, mm. have this kind of deep discussion about Morpheus's character in Japanese mm. would have been beyond me. Yes. The guys who are the production people who are in the studio, I think it was beyond them to uh, explain in uh, yes. in English what they wanted. Ah. Uh, I'm not sure about Raj. I can't remember how well Raj spoke Japanese. Probably a lot better than me. He spent... Oh, actually, I'm not sure how long you did spend, but he spent, he says, over half his life in Japan. So he was, he was fluent in Japanese, but only very much from being brought up there for such a considerable time. OK, well, I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, well, going on to, in terms of... The, the communication barrier and, and this goes to another question that the Oracle Dragon has asked were you even shown any concept art or any designs of Morpheus even in terms of you know just what he looked like yes I think so I think there were drawings around and there were mm. uh, um, there weren't any sets obviously but mm. uh, um, yes there was a certain amount of uh, um, artwork to have a look at and of course the artwork when you looked at it, it said video game. And mm. I wasn't a video game player. What I can get from the artwork is we're not dealing here with uh, real flesh and blood human beings who get up and have Weetabix for breakfast and you know catch the bus to work. We're dealing with fantasy people here. Yes, yeah, who, oh, very much so, yes. And yes. fantasy people are supposed to personify certain human characteristics which may be you know good and for the benefit of society and favorable or they may be um evil and cold and ruthless mm. this is the function of these characters they don't leave us with the feeling that they are convincing ordinary human beings they're not ordinary now was i mean were you even afforded that level of direction were, you know words such as that were you know were you told this is morpheus and he is cold he is calculated yes. um yeah because one thing that i've drawn upon that that i i wanted to get your take on is i've always felt that uh, morpheus was was i mean a, a vehement narcissist and I've actually gone back to suggesting that one of the, the character faults, the flaws that he had that, that kind of drove this, what I believe is a narcissistic personality disorder, is is great self-loathing and shame that may, I, I suggest, may have been evidenced by by his uh, extreme plastic surgery beforehand. So were, were things of, of that sort of nature brought, brought up with you? Yes, things of that nature were brought up. I don't think they were so much brought up in terms of me sitting there and being instructed by the production people. There was a certain amount of that. But then the actors would talk about it. Because me and Raj and Claire and the others could speak, mm -hmm. uh, or could all speak fluent English, we could discuss the matter. OK, uh, oh, and OK. We, and so, you know, the others might say to me, OK, well, listen, you've got to realise that Morpheus is like this. And I go, oh, OK, right, I understand oh, that. So, so if anything, you, you had the same, or if not more, sort of, direction from each other yeah yeah from each other's going to say uh direct, di direction support from from the from the voice actors absolutely and i may say that's a something which happens all the time in all kinds of voice work in japan usually because the production people <laughs> are japanese and there is you know some degree of language barrier so it seems to happen naturally that the voice actors are you know, begin the whole job in sympathy with each other and sort of help each other out and, and go as far as to interrupt in the middle of a take and yes. say, hey, hang on a minute, Raj, you know, I don't think that's right. You know, you're supposed to be saying it like this. 
and you know then there might be a discussion about it mm. and uh, far from being displeased you know the directors and uh, were would, would be glad to have that input from the actors in a way that's what they wanted you know yes. they, they wanted the the westerners take on what was happening if you like Okay, okay. Um, now, I don't want to labour the point, but I, I just something you mentioned before, and, and I, I don't feel I, I, I sort of highlighted it sufficiently. The, the word female was brought up in terms of, of the Morpheus character, and if, if, if so, did they dis- was that more of a discussion in terms of his post-transformation, or, or was that more sort of a, a general discussion in terms of how, he, how that character saw himself uh, from the onset? I don't think it. I don't think we went into it deeply enough yeah. to discuss how he saw what he would be like after this transformation. I, mm. I don't think so. No, mm. I mean, he was. Uh, um, as I say, he was. He's a sort of um, not a cartoon character, but a, you know, he's not a real person, mm. Morpheus, mm. and therefore the fact that he uh, changes. Into and, and, and acquires a female persona, which would be almost inexplicable in an ordinary human being, is not inexplicable at all in a video game character. You know, it's a, okay, fine. Well, I, I felt at the time it was quite a brave decision. What is a, a quite a serious tone, and, and they're trying to put forward a very sinister, foreboding, insidious tone that, that, that I believe they do very well, and it's one of the reasons I, I connected with this video game and, and see a lot of connections with not not the narrative of 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 the film the shining but the actual the atmosphere of 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 the of the environment that that you're exploring um but i thought it was very brave of to cap contest of to to take that that theme on well you may be right and uh but i when we talked about this recently um you mentioned japanese ghost stories Yes, and, as the as the uh, the origin. Way, sorry, you know, this way of treating uh, mysterious events hmm. is, um, I think, comes naturally to the Japanese mind. They're brought up okay. with this. Uh, there's an enormous body of ghost stories in uh, Japanese folk lore, yes. and lots of people, nearly everybody knows lots and lots of ghost stories and. Um, you know, people people refer to them in conversation, and then other people know what story they're talking about. Oh, 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 really? oh. that's true in uh, modern English society. Oh, that's interesting. So, it, so it transcends of general popular culture to, to that extent, almost as if we may discuss in this country sort of nursery rhymes or, or more yes, sort of. Yes, absolutely. Yes, uh, um, ghost stories are deeply embedded in uh, Japanese consciousness yes yes and and I, I will very quickly point out i'm sure most of our listeners if not all do are, are aware that the origins of resident evil uh, are steeped in the the film the book and then the later video game it, it certainly didn't start as a video game the film sweet home which was a japanese origin ghost story there were no zombies to be seen yeah i think that's uh that's a very natural transition in the Japanese mind from the ghost story to the kind of video game that we're talking about. Whereas in uh, um, Western society, that Mm. might be uh, a bit more strange. And so you said just now that um, it seemed very brave of Capcom to have done. Mm. I'm not sure it's bravery. It's more like a logical progression. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, yeah. 
I enjoy hearing you say that because it goes to the connection that I have with Resident Evil that I find myself as someone who isn't a particular fan of the horror and certainly not a fan of the gore you know genre as a as a fan of of ghost stories and that atmosphere that's the atmosphere that Dead Aim has you know whilst you are walking on a boat in an isolated atmosphere uh, that's infested with zombies it's um no the, the feeling that i've always got is as i said is, is very much walking around a haunted that 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 generic haunted mansion um yeah the, yeah sure there's a, I mean the in japanese ghost stories the, there is often a climax at, at which somebody is uh, killed in some awful way or there is gore or that kind mm. of thing but the the heart of the ghost story is always mm. the creation of the atmosphere that you're talking about you know the when the the person hears some mysterious sound somewhere else in the house mm. or he's crossing a bridge in the snow and he mm. thinks he sees somebody up ahead but it's not a real person or some and it's always the atmosphere and the tension and yes. the build up which yes. is what yes. uh, dominates the story and the actual bit where you know you you get to the end and the body is found with its head cut off or something is that's not really the point no no but, yeah. And for that reason, you're, you're absolutely right, because for that reason, the music in Resident Evil, the, the background score, plays such an important role. And, and if you speak to any fan of, the, of Resident Evil, particularly, and, and very pointedly, the fans from the, the older games, I mean, we're talking about um, a, a style of game and an attitude of production that Capcom had, which I felt stopped around 2004. But from the late 90s to, 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 to the mid-2000s, the music in Resident Evil, well, 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 you speak to any fan and they'll talk to you just with just as much passion and, and, and for as long about the music as the gameplay, because the music sets the atmosphere. Uh, and yeah. e- you walk into various rooms, and each room will have its signature track, which is, you know, generally with Resident Evil, particularly with the, the Dead Aim era, very almost melancholy and haunting yes i mean i would say you know this is where raj comes in because i yes. I, I actually remember raj more as a musician and uh, you know yes. his musical contribution to this thing uh, was massive and i say that as somebody who has no i you know i don't have any musical talent i don't play a musical instrument but yeah. uh, raj has very kindly and generously donated to us the unheard unreleased theme that he wrote for dead aim which was unceremoniously dropped at the last moment and replaced with some awful yes, rock, um, hard rock track which which I, I, I you've heard you know the track the rock track i'm referring to that replaced I Raj's. I do. why that happened i have absolutely no idea but it's, uh, you know that's what happens in all this Yes. Kinds of productions where lots of people are involved. Some people are involved in the acting, some people are involved in the music, and, you know, there are different departments and different people. And so you get these strange arbitrary decisions that are made. I think that decision was a mistake, and many people... Also, so. so you've got the original music that's great Raj gave us his original track which I'm sure you're not surprised to hear is far more in keeping with the tone of the atmosphere of the game great I look forward to hearing it and that's covered a lot of the questions in terms of the Morpheus character um, sure. I, want, I wanted to go on to the, the, the James Bond theme that you mentioned now I have to admit yes. myself I'm not a James Bond expert I think yes. because of my age and and, and just happen to be a, a, a bit of a fan 
uh, of Roger Moore. At the time, I, yeah. I am quite familiar with some of the films, not necessarily the wider world of James Bond, but you've mentioned in the past connected Morpheus to Dr. No in our previous conversation. I wondered if you w- w- may care to sort of allude further on that. Yes. It became clear early on that Morpheus was a mysterious and menacing person that everyone in the game was wary of because he exudes this power. And you're right, it is partly a question of age. I remember when the film Dr. No came out, it was the first James Bond film. So Joseph Wiseman, the Canadian actor who played Dr. No, was creating the prototype evil character in the James Bond series. And in later movies, they stayed away from this. Can I just ask, when you say they strayed away from it, uh, uh, do, do you mean in terms of did they get uh, more camp or more, more over the top? Yes, they became more camp and over the top. In the second movie, From Russia With Love, the bad guy is not seen. You just see his lap and he's holding a white cat and he's got a very soft voice. No doubt he is menacing, but he doesn't seem very menacing. And later on, we get to more extravagant characters. Which, in fact, may probably be why, when we discussed this before, I actually made the mistake of thinking I was thinking of a James Bond baddie. And then I recall that, actually, no, I wasn't. I was thinking of the chap from the Peter Sellers of Pink Panther film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing that Ian Fleming, who wrote the books, did um, was, for reasons of his own, in each book, the bad guy is somebody different until we get to Blofeld, and and he keeps uh, recurring. Now, this idea goes back a long way. When I was a child, I was given books to read about a character called Bulldog Drummond. He was a sort of prototype James Bond from the 1920s. Okay, yeah. And in each book, he was constantly having battles with a bad guy called Carl Peterson. At the end of every book, Carl Peterson escapes only to turn up in the next book, being an evil genius doing something else. And I saw Dr. No a little bit like that. He had been a treasurer for the Tongs, a Chinese triad gang. He'd stolen money from them and he'd been tortured and lost his hands. But then he'd escaped and taken away all the money and he'd put his headquarters on this Jamaican island. <laughs> Missiles are only the first step to prove our power. Our power? With your disregard for human life, you must be working for the East. East, West, just points of the compass, each as stupid as the other. I'm a member of Spectre. Spectre? Spectre. Special executive for counterintelligence, terrorism, revenge, extortion. The four great cornerstones of power, headed by the greatest brains in the world. Correction. Criminal brain. A successful criminal brain is always superior. It has to be. Why become criminal? I'm sure the West would welcome a scientist of your caliber. The Americans are fools. I offered my services, they refused. So did the East. Now they can both pay for their mistake. And uh, and he was very, very bitter 
very cold, beautifully controlled. I mean, he never got angry. He didn't uh, respond in any way to being provoked by well, Jack. This, this is sorry. This is I let you go on. So this is fascinating. But this is Morpheus to a T. Just in terms of the the, the building, the, the the isolated headquarters, and and I, I'll let you go on. But as you say, the the all the, the coldness and the aloof, the fact that he didn't respond when, for example, Bruce pointed a gun at him. He, he just laughingly mocked him. Yes. Well, exactly. And. Uh, and so when I was first confronted with doing the job of Morpheus, yes. uh, Dr. No came to my mind immediately, and I thought, this is the kind of character we're talking about, somebody very cold, very controlled, extremely bitter about something, about something that's happened in the past. Ah. So you came to that conclusion without even knowing that, that Morpheus had been replaced, had been fired, had been treated by Umbrella, his employer, as a scapegoat for this, this appalling um, outbreak, this company tragedy. They, Morpheus was this scapegoat. And so you weren't even aware of, of this when you already came to that conclusion. All I know is that the, the two characters became a bit blended into each other, in my mind. Why you American spies choose to use such ugly guns is still a mystery to me. Morpheus. Think that cheap balloon you wear is going to your head. What do you plan to do with the T-Virus? I'm afraid that's all the playtime we have for today. Die. Now. In, when you've got the job to do, when you're asked to voice such a character in a video game, it helps. You can base the idea of the character on something that you know. And it just happens because of my age, as I know Dr. No very well, and it seemed a perfect fit. Yeah. It's not just Dr. No's background and character. It's also the very controlled way that he speaks and his very cool, hard, unapproachable presence. The guy has no heart at all. Nothing moves him. All he's interested in is the uh, success of his own scheme. Thank you, because it, that really does come across in your performance. It's, it's evident in your performance that that aloofness, that 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 cold, uh, yeah. cold arrogance. Good, yes. It, it's probably an oversimplification, but I saw this situation pretty much as me being Doctor No and Raj playing James Bond, um, and you know there is a certain amount of uh, parallel there. A scared little rat with an ugly, useless gun. M Morpheus? <coughs> As I said, useless. <laughs> mm, yeah. 
Well, luckily, the only really sort of cheesy James Bond moment they save right till the end with, with, with a scene with Raj's character, Bruce, and fondling on, on an inflatable in the middle of the ocean. There's more than one James Bond <laughs> movie where he ends up on a boat with somebody. And uh, <laughs> um, in fact, he does in Doctor No. He ends up in a sort of rowing boat with Ursula Andress. Okay, yes. Oh, well, I wonder if that, that it was. It was that the developers had that in mind with the end of Dead Aim. They well have done, yes. I don't know. (laughs) This is quite an interesting question that comes in from Engreg. Well, it's both interesting in itself as a question, but also in terms of whether the experience of voicing a a character such as Morpheus with its restricted preparation time and and the little biography that you are furnished with, whether that experience even allows you to have the type of relationship, the type of understanding with the character that even makes it fair to put this question to you. But I, I, I will ask it if you don't mind. And, and M. Greg asks, do you believe Morpheus was wholly evil or was he more of an anti-hero, undeserving of his fate? Well, it's a very good question. And I can only answer from my own feelings about life in general that nobody is wholly evil. Mm. But I am talking about the sorts of human beings we meet every day, whereas the whole point about Morpheus is that he was trying to be wholly evil. But if you've spent the early part of your life not being wholly evil, Mm -hmm. and then you fall out with the Umbrella Corporation and decide to get revenge on them, and you try to be as evil as you possibly can be, well, then you will be as evil as you possibly can be. Yeah. But I don't think you can eradicate the possibility that there was some good in Morpheus. Well, before we leave your time with Morpheus, if I may ask, and it certainly sounds it comes across in your experiences, that that was this an enjoyable experience? And would you be happy if he were ever to turn up in in a sequel to voice Morpheus again in the future? Um, Yes, it was a hugely enjoyable experience, actually. It was great. It was the first uh, video game that I'd been involved in. Yes. Uh, I enjoyed it uh, enormously because it was something completely different. Uh, if the opportunity to play Morpheus uh, again came up, you know, mm. yeah, sure, I'd be, uh, uh, I'd be delighted. With Resident Evil, being in the studio with other actors that you know personally anyway and with um, production people who are all well disposed to the actors, you know, and I mean, the atmosphere was good. It was friendly. And, uh, you know, when it's lunchtime, we all sit down on bits of equipment and, you know, have a kind of picnic, you know, it was a friendly operation. I'm saying. And so, yes, it was enjoyable. And yes, I'd be very glad. I mentioned this before for a character that has a less than a 10th of the dialogue of Albert Wesker. He is as prominent in the minds of the fans. Bruce! Shame on you, Bruce. A good agent would never risk his mission to save a woman. That's going to be a very costly mistake. Holy! Just 
stunning photographs, all different things, not, not focusing on, on, on one particular form on your website. And I'm sure that, that our, our residents and the w- wider fans of, of Resident Evil out there, because I know there's, there's that, obviously that huge interest in, in J- J- Japanese culture, w- w- can, can go and enjoy some of those photographs on your website, that they're stunning. Good, or I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, so my, uh, my wife comes from northern Japan, and when I first went there in 1974, we went to um, an island which is in the Japan Sea called Sado Island. Yes. At the time, it was almost unbelievably undeveloped. Sort of place. There were hardly any made roads, and there was very little to eat, and it was a very, very impoverished place, which it right. isn't now. It's developed a lot, but we've been back... Um, many times, and uh, mm. you know, I've walked around it and wrote a book about it. Um, so, if anybody wants to go to Sado Island in the future, you know, they can pick up on a bit of history and a bit of um, a bit of background about. Ah, okay. So your so your book focuses not just on on the general, uh, n- not just the general travel, but but goes into the history of the islands and the culture. Yes, because the without wanting to labour the point at great length. Um, A long time ago in Japan, the death penalty was suspended because of the influence of Buddhism. It was um, deemed to be a bad thing. And instead of the death penalty, what people got was exile. But, I mean, it is in some ways worse than the death penalty because people were sent to far-off places. They weren't allowed to leave far off places they were sent to. They weren't told how long they were going for. I mean, their sentence might be commuted a year or two later, or they might just be left there forever. So almost, well, yeah, as you say, almost a slow death then. Almost a slow death. And so uh, islands are particularly suitable. And uh, Sado Island was used as a place of exile. And because of that, the islanders who are were, you know, just impoverished farmers and fishermen, found themselves joined by a stream of uh, aristocrats and skilled people and knowledgeable people of one sort or another who'd fallen out with the government for various reasons and been sent there. Yeah. This gave rise to a very peculiar type of uh, history. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it's a very interesting place, and there are... And there are many places in Japan which have a very uh, profound history which, whose effects linger on in Japanese consciousness to the day. So, you know, I mean, in, in many ways, Japan is regarded as strange by uh, mm. people of other countries, uh, strange and alien. Yes. Um, but when you get there and you, know, you, particularly if you travel around outside of the big cities... Yes. Um, it all makes much more sense, and it's an enormously interesting place and uh, very, very rewarding to go there. There's one very curious point about Japan, which is not often noticed, which is that only about, I think, 30, 20 or 30% of the country is, is habitable, is flat enough for people to live on and have farms on, and the rest of the country is mountains. And the mountains in Japan tend to be not high, but very steep, and so development is not possible mm. on those uh, on those mountains. As a result, you can go from uh, the centre of Tokyo in not much more than an hour mm. by train to the foot of a mountain range, and if you then get off the train and walk into the mountains, you'll find yourself in 
Japan completely unchanged for hundreds of years. This is not possible in England. No, no. And you know, the geography is completely different in England. There are no places in England which are which have never been discovered. Mm. There are lots of places in Japan where, you know, human foot has hardly ever trodden. And so because of this, people who lived in rural yeah. communities yes. very rarely travelled from one place to another. And yeah. the mountains were seen as containing, you know, danger and spirits and so on. And this, yeah. in a way, takes us back to what we were saying before about ghost stories yes. and the extreme sensitivity of Japan to um, the, the mysteries of the unseen, if you like, mm. the world which is not known, which is very nearby, mm. um, but not explored. The unseen world, if you like, is much closer to Japanese people than it is... Yeah people in other countries. You know, when you live in a, a country where nature is extremely unstable, there are typhoons, there are earthquakes, there are volcanoes, mm. um, when, you, when you live surrounded by uh, a very unstable nature, a very dangerous nature, uh, yes. you know, you treasure uh, yes. precious moments. And that th is poetry and art shows us a lot of, of, of the precious moments and small things that, are, that they value. Quite yes. from the English psyche. We live in a country where nature is not dangerous. No, and, and, and for that um, reason, as you say, perhaps let, let, let's, it's not, not as appreciative or certainly don't hold up art and culture with perhaps such, such significance. As you say, we, we, this, set, this uh, sense of security that we have yeah. um, and, and fail to understand. I certainly do that when you look at Japan, you think of a big city um, in terms of that, no different to a city in London, but, but, you, but, but yeah, fail to realise what you're saying, living on the edge often of death. Absolutely, yes, absolutely. Well, I must say I've, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed and it has been a privilege finding out with you, for example, one of the reasons why within Japanese culture there is that, 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 that ghost story um, element that theme of um, areas where where humans have yet to tread uh, and that sort of foreboding you know not knowing what's out there and w not wanting to change so 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 thank you thank you angus mm, good. Um, I, I think that is a very important thing and it's not often uh, it's it's not often said you know a, japan is often presented even today on uh, television for example as interesting because it is so curious and different and apparently eccentric yes um, and isn't that funny and i don't find it funny i I've, i i think it's a great pity that people are encouraged to find what is strange funny it's mm. funny it's interesting and it's instructive and we can learn from it but personally yes. i don't i it doesn't make me want to roar with laughter you know i there is so much to learn from a place like Japan. Um, yes. And in a way, it shines a light on, you know, how we look at our own country. And mm. hey, um, Let's have another interview tomorrow. We can, <laughs> we can dig up all kinds of stuff. Angus, thank you very, very much for uh, your time. You've been particularly generous and also particularly gracious from the start in the time and the attention that you've given me. I did contact you out of the blue. Um, would I be right in thinking this is the first time that you've spoken in such detail on the character of Morpheus? Yes, you would be right in, uh, in thinking that. And, uh, you know, thank you very much for uh, your interest. And I'm very glad that uh, there are many people out there who are 
interested. I hope I've answered their questions. And uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Absolutely likewise. And for that reason, even more so, um, it's been a privilege for me and it will be an absolute delight for all the fans to hear from you. So from me and from the wider Resident Evil community, the voice of Morpheus D. Duval, Mr. Angus Waycott, thank you very, very much. And thank you. Bye. The symbol of power is in Africa. The symbol of knowledge is here in the biosphere. The symbol of beauty is mine. The beauty controls everything. And I shall dominate it. Establishing a kingdom where beauty has absolute authority is the dream which I must make a reality. I was disappointed by Umbrella's betrayal. But that's fine. I'll just use them in return. If I secure enough funds, I will materialize the construction of my kingdom deep in Africa. Midnight, where the stars and you. Midnight, and a rendezvous Your eyes held a message tender Saying I surrender All my love to you Midnight brought a sweet romance I know all my whole life through I'll be remembering you Whatever else I do Midnight Where the stars and you Concierge for this evening, Grady, will now escort you to the Gold Ballroom, hosting the premiere outside of Japan of Resident Evil Dead Aim's never-before-released original theme, Heroes Never Die, written and performed by Raj Ramaya, the voice of Bruce McGiven, Resident Evil narrator and composer. Leading into this Crimson Head Elder exclusive, our panel of George Trevor, the Oracle Dragon, USS Command and Albert Wesker 187 discuss live with Raj his Resident Evil acting and composing. And without further delay, Raj, welcome to the Overlook Hotel, hosting the Halloween Crimson Head Elder podcast. Hello, thanks for having me today. Raccoon City, a Midwestern town in the United States, was destroyed when the substance known as the T-Virus leaked throughout the town. However, Umbrella, 
the corporation developing the virus, refused to abort the project, and once again, the threat of biological terror was thrust upon the world. A large amount of T-virus was stolen three days ago when a terrorist group hit an umbrella lab in France. Yesterday, one of Umbrella's cruisers was hijacked and contaminated with the same virus. Resident Evil, the, the franchise, and I mean, had you even played some of the Resident Evil games yourself? No, I, actually, I wasn't a, um, a real gamer, uh, and I still am not a gamer, but um, uh, I had heard of the franchise before, and um, I had some friends who were involved with the franchise in different ways, music and, and um, you know, um, doing some direction and things like that. So I was aware of it, um, but I hadn't really played or anything like that before I got involved. Have you seen any of the Resident Evil movies? You know, um, I I was I'm from I was born in, in in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, and actually my my guy that a uh, little bit older than me that I went to school with is named Kim Coates, and oh. uh, Kim Coates was one of the stars of the Resident Evil movies, and uh, my brother is a director in Canada, and he in my he's and Kim has been in several of my brother's movies, and now he's in Sons of Anarchy, right? It's really odd that two guys from Saskatoon, one of them mm. is one of the voice actors in in. Uh, in the show, and the other one is actually one that in the live action, and yeah. it's a tiny little town in the middle of Canada that no one ever goes to. Oh wow! And am I right to think that Kim Coates has also also played a character in the Silent Hill film? Officer Gucci. Yeah. Oh, that's Gucci. right. Yeah. Oh my God, you're right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I never even thought that. about that. That's weird. Yeah. No, I was surprised to see him on Sons of Anarchy too. He just finished a movie with my brother, and then I turned on. This is years ago when Sons of Anarchy started, and I turned it on. My friends are talking about this show, and there he was. So. So has he has he ever discussed the Resident Evil movies with you? I mean, have, for example, has he apologized? <laughs> He should apologize. No, I'll get an apology out of him. <laughs> no, it's not his apology. It's, 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 it's Mr. Anderson. It's Mr. Anderson's apology. It's not. It's not for Kim. Okay, I think I will get together with them. I think I need to have this discussion with them. You know what? I'm going down there to talk to him about this. I'm gonna get. An, I'm gonna get an apology out of him for for you guys. You better record that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Send that to us. I'll get that with my iPhone. I'll send. I'm gonna surprise you guys. I'm gonna try and get that if I can. Oh my word. industry 
Yeah, I was already doing, uh, and I, I haven't stopped really. I mean, one of the questions was we talk about me stopping, but I haven't actually stopped. I've just been doing a lot mm. of stuff that's in Japan uh, and all Japanese based. I was on, I've been on, on quite a number of TV series in Japan, animated TVs, uh, TV shows, and movies in in Japan that had never been released outside Japan. They'd never been overdubbed for the foreign market, so they've all all been you know within japan if you go online you'll find that kind of stuff in japan but uh for the most part for the majority of the voice work that i did in japan was mostly session singing where i'd be singing on tv commercials movie soundtracks uh tv shows and things like that animation so i still continue doing narrations once in a while but uh, i do mainly a lot of singing work for a lot of different people so that's that's the, the bulk of my voice work Okay, well, that, well, that's interesting because that leads me on to a question that Crimson Elder had asked, mm-hmm. and, and what had actually initially brought you into the, the voice acting industry, and, and was it that musical background and, and first taking up those musical roles that, that, that got you into the industry in, in the first place? Um, yeah, I mean, I started. Uh, I think the one thing that got me into the whole anime and game industry was uh, Yoko Kano. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with her, uh, quite famous anime composer, and I was signed to Victor okay. Victor Entertainment at the time. And Victor Entertainment um, started introducing me to different agents and to different other companies for singing on games and, and writing music for games. And also, and then as a kind of a natural progression of that, they're asking me if I could voice act. And I said, sure. So since I was there singing and doing some of the writing, they'd, they'd ask me to read for some of the parts. And I started getting more and more parts. Uh, but as I mentioned, a lot of the parts had a connection to me being the singer as well for the series. Um mm. And also, as well as writing music, as you kind of the whole biohazard thing as well, the Resident Evil thing was that as well, partially singing, oh. singing, voice acting, and, and writing as well. So it's usually a combination of those things. That's interesting because in terms of, of, of Dead Aim, what, what came first or did they come simultaneously? Were you specifically asked to provide the composition, music or, or, or the narration or, or were they aware that you could you could bring both, you know, could bring both to the party? I think they were aware that I could bring both. Uh, but I think what they needed at that time was, was a voice actor. And um, hmm. they'd, um, I just started doing some voice acting at that time. I was just sort of getting my feet wet with the situation. I was doing several TV shows in Japan uh, in English and in Japanese. So uh, they heard about me and contacted my agent. And um, I think because of the previous work that I was doing in anim- animation and anime, Japanese anime, I was getting well known for that. And I'd, I'd written uh, about two, three songs that did quite well in Japan on the Oricon charts. And so people were starting to find out about oh, okay. me. Yeah. People were starting to find out about me through the singing and through the writing for anime. Yeah. And then the game companies started, suddenly a lot of game companies started contacting me, Konami, Sega. Uh, Capcom, yes. um, several game companies were contacting me to come and sing, voice act, and write songs for them. So I was very fortunate at that time that you know it just kind of all came all at once and never stopped from there, kind of thing. Oh, so. you're a fluent Japanese speaker. Yeah, I've lived in Japan uh, more than half my life. If we've got a huge inbox for translations on Biohazard, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll send them your, I'll send them all your way. <laughs> Later on, that's interesting because we're going to come on to localization errors and how appalling the actual translations mm-hmm. are that we get. But going back to that initial relationship with Capcom, a question that uh, the Oracle Dragon, who's here on our panel, that she asked was, uh, what was your first impression when you were asked to, to, to voice a character from this iconic series? Um, well, I was very flattered, of course. And, um, you know, I was very interested in, in, in uh, seeing what I could sort of bring to, to the franchise. And... Um, also, what they really wanted from me in terms of being a voice actor, I, I do different voices and uh, several different styles. 
Um, so until I actually saw the visuals for it, I wasn't sure what they wanted. And actually, until we got the studio, I don't think they knew what they wanted. <laughs> I was going to say, that sounds like Capcom. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> totally, yeah. <laughs> Were there representatives from Caviar that, that approached your agent? Were you aware of, of their input? Yeah, yeah, the Caviar people were there the whole time. Um, I, you know, I don't remember all their names, but uh, they were definitely there. They were part of the whole process, and they, they had you know, a fair amount of input into the creative end of things. And uh, so it was Capcom and Kavya, both both of those organizations were there. Do you remember any particular developers, specific personalities that, that were there and very much taking a lead in terms of directing you? Um, you know, I cannot remember the main developer's name. Tatsuya Minami. Yeah, that's uh, it. He was, um, he was very, uh, <laughs> you know, he, they had some clear ideas about how he wanted things. And um, I, I did some motion uh, motion capture acting as well for the show. So they um, they had motion capturing devices on me while I was narrating, and, and um, I guess they used some of that in the actual game. And it was interesting. He had his own take on how things should be. They had some pretty clear ideas about what they wanted in terms of um, sound, uh, and uh, yes. but I don't think they really knew what the character was was supposed to what his character was going to be like. They had a sort of I think basic uh, bare bones idea, and then you know we talked about it and we tried different voices and. You know, they, they kind of like that southern drawl. <laughs> yeah, well, that, the, yeah, that's interesting. There are two things that you mentioned that are very interesting. I'll get on to the southern drawl, but the fact that as a voice actor, it sounds as if you were, they had the confidence to go with you in terms of the input. So as has been the case before, mm-hmm. you know, the, the voice actor steps into, you know, almost a, a ready-made mould, right. but, but not, not at all the case with, with Bruce McGiven. So when you turned up on day one, Bruce was nowhere near the, the fully realised character he turned out to be then, and, and, and that realisation had a lot of your input in it, did it? Yeah, yes, I'm happy to say they did, actually. I was surprised how much freedom they gave me with the whole situation, and, you know, they were very supportive, very cool about everything, and I think that... Um, um, they were still trying to figure out what what they wanted, and so they were open to me um, giving some input into the situation. And um, yeah, they were they were um, I'd say fairly easy to work with actually, you know. And, and uh, I'm very happy that mm. I could have some creative input into the situation, and that people still enjoy the game. I'm very surprised <laughs> all these years later, it's still still out there. Going back to the southern draw that you mentioned, James Marcus, a resident at our site, has actually asked. What was the inspiration for that southern accented voice, uh, which does, it sounds very different to your singing voice. It's very distinct <laughs> yeah. in the Resident Evil world. <laughs> um, uh, what, what, were you directed by the production team to voice him in that particular way? And, and, and he then asks, he then finishes his question, mm-hmm. was the word redneck ever mentioned? <laughs> the word redneck. Um, you know, no, it, was, it wasn't mentioned. Um, it just, I don't know why the character just struck me as being a, you know, like a, an adventuresome, tough, you know, southern guy. And, and I think that's kind of what they were getting at when they were talking to me about the character. And we were speaking Japanese about it. And they had some idea, ideas about, um, you know, this tough guy from the southern United States and um, adventurous yeah. kind of agent. And so, you know, uh, I said, well, then obviously he's got to have a southern southern accent to him, right? And, and then when I just started um, coming up with some ideas, they thought that's perfect. It matches him perfectly. And we just sort of went from there. I think there was, there was something about uh, Brad Pitt and being in some movie. I think it was some movie that Brad Pitt was in that they, that they were, they felt okay. inspired. I can't remember which movie it was. Seven. It could be, you know, because I think that they had this idea about Brad 
it uh, and with the with the character as well they wanted some that kind of that kind of either feeling right because in seven you've got brad pitt the cop that sort of partnered with with the kind of the old karma wiser right. yeah um, <laughs> and brad pitt was very much that was very much the hothead that had to be kind of kept under control by you know the wiser almost the avuncular character yeah. played by it's morgan freeman that's it yeah, yeah yeah that was specifically mentioned to you yeah it? they mentioned something about that yeah definitely and um yeah yeah and the different the southern you know southern accent was was definitely something they brought up they wanted to try different things but that was something they brought up for sure and they brought the brad pitt reference <laughs> and some other things so yeah yeah i think it just is it, it was a number of different things that came, came together and we came up with that <laughs> particular character so where are we heading you'll see not just going to pick up two more dead bodies, are we, John? That wouldn't be shocking enough. We've got newspapers to think about, yeah? But the question is, what makes you so special that people should listen? See, I, I don't I, I don't see anything special about it, John. That's not true. No, it is true. And the funny thing is, all this work, two months from now, no one's gonna care, no one's gonna give a shit, no one's gonna remember. You can't see the whole complete act yet. But when this is done, when it's finished, people will barely be able to comprehend it. But they won't be able to deny. Could the freak be any more vague? I mean, as far as masterminds go, John. I can't wait for you to see. I really can't. It's really going to be something. Well, you know what? I'm going to be standing right next to you. So when this big thing happens, you be sure and let me know, because I wouldn't want to miss it. Oh, don't worry. You won't. You won't miss a thing. Hello? I lost What's What's happening? What happened? I, I lost connection. I actually quite pleased with myself. I only swore twice, <laughs> right. and then I thought, and then I, then I thought to myself, "Shit! If, if if I swear again, and Raj can hear this, he, he's probably going to get the wrong impression of who's interviewing him." So, right, the Oracle Dragon's going to actually come on to some questions now, and one of the questions I know she's going to ask mm -hmm. you is going, to, is going to refer specifically to the other actors. But if I can just quickly ask, just in terms of that that process of of putting the character together. Initially, mm -hmm. before you actually came to the, the structured scripts, did you have mm -hmm. any contact with, with Angus Waycott, for, who plays Morpheus Duval, or with Claire O'Connor, who plays Fong Ling? Did you have any interaction with them in terms of that character development? Um, you know, I, I knew Claire um, before we got together, but we hadn't oh. really spoke, spoken about the situation um, so I didn't know that much. I mean, I got to know her better actually after mm. that recording. And then she had a narration company in Tokyo. I'm not sure she still has it, but uh, after that, I ended up doing lots of work for her narration company in Tokyo. Um, so that was the first time I really met her. I think and really will get to know her. I met her before the first time I got to know her with that was with that recording. So um, actually, no, she's the only person I really got to know, and, and mm. I did not know Angus at all, really. Mm. So. Mm. We're not given a, like a ton of information to go on. I think that um, um, for this type of character, for these types of characters, I think that um, you know um, we were developing them as as we went along in a way. Mm. Uh, there was some some coaching and I guess oh, some um, creative input from everybody involved. 
but we we developed the character uh, you know organically as we went along instead of instead of having a very fixed character um i think for voice acting it might be a little bit different i think that there's more flexibility uh as you're you're yeah you know, right you're just voicing the character and not having to act and having to have to have the appropriate clothing and the right look for it it's more it's just the voice so um Oftentimes, from my experience anyway, um, there's a lot of flexibility and creative input. It depends on the voice actor and his relation, his or her relationship with the, with the director, and um, you know how open they are to to being creative um, uh, in, a, in a group setting. But um, I think that you know this this kind of grew organically, and um, I, I kind of like the way it grew. Out. You know, everybody was very very um, very professional yet easygoing about the situation. Just talking to you now, I can very much picture that kind of attitude and, and, and the atmosphere. That's quite unique in terms of the Resident Evil series that, that goes to you as an artist, the confidence that the developers had to, to very much go, you know, go with your, your ideas, that you had that level of input into the character. That's fantastic. Mm, thank you. Yeah. You'll be pleased to know I'm, I can now shut up, and I'm going. To, <laughs> I, I, I'm going. To, you've heard my voice for, for far too often now, mostly because you've been so kind with your time. I'm going to pass oh, you. You're I'm, welcome. I'm going to pass you over to the Oracle Dragon, who has more community questions. You do know you stole one of my questions. I did not. <laughs> I, I I knew she was going. I I made a point of saying that that the, the Oracle was going to come onto that, but I was just asking specifically in terms of the character development. You're going to ask that question in terms of the uh, the structured. Script. I'm, I've been slapped down. Sorry, sorry, Oracle. <laughs> <laughs> right, all right, I got some questions for you. Mm-hmm. Juan de Eleven and myself have a question. Well, a few actually. Okay. Were you afforded creative liberty by Capcom on how to handle the voice work, or were you given specific instructions on how to express yourself? Um, you know, we we talked a little bit about that, but you know, I think that it was a combination of both. I, I got um, some direction from them, but they also gave me some liberty to to develop the character. So I think it was, it was a collaborative effort, basically. Were you able to see your character being attacked? Like, when, example, Fong Ling meets Bruce for the first time and they interact mm. and she beats him up in a way. <laughs> Were you able to see that given the grunts and the straining of your voice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we even talked about that. She even joked about that for, for years afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> How she met me and beat me up the first time she saw me, so... Hi, I'm Bruce. Welcome. Ah! Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, no, that, that's definitely a memorable part of the whole, the whole experience. Oh, 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 wait, wait, you saved me earlier. You're Chinese security bureau, huh? Looks like we're in the same business. Same business doesn't mean same side, Bruce McGivern. You already know my name. That makes sense since you're blackmailing both of our groups. What's your name? Cooperation is too much to ask for on our first date. Might I suggest we simply stay out of each other's way? Falling? That's my name. And I don't date freshmen. If you really want to help, then go ahead. Exactly the same thing happened when you met the tyrant the first time in the game. A scared little rat with an ugly, useless gun. Morpheus? (laughs) 
Exactly. All right, next one is, what is the experience like being involved in both voicing the major protagonist, Bruce, and composing the game's theme track? Um, you know, I think it's 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 a nice combination, both of them. Um, I've, I've done the same same thing actually several times for uh, productions which you're probably not aware of but that are well known in Japan I was in a um, a TV series called Little Chato in Japan which is a very popular um, kids um, TV show animated TV show so <clears throat> I am I was one of the one of the main characters in the show but I also wrote um, I co-wrote several of the songs the theme songs and scores for the for the show and sang a lot of the stuff and I think they fit together nicely actually you know it's uh, it's it's not often that the voice actors actually sing and write music for it, but for me, it's it's very natural, and and I think that's been sort of my um, um, calling card over the years to be doing um, two or three different things on a production. So for me, it was very natural, and I, I hope people enjoy it. Unfortunately, <laughs> it wasn't released as part of the game, but you know, it 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 is it's there somehow in the game in the background at least. You have no idea how many people are happy to hear your song. Oh wow! Great. Yeah, it's a beautiful song. I the game. I enjoyed every single moment of it. Oh great! I'm so happy to hear that. You know, I wish Capcom would re-release it with the song on it. All right, another question from M. Greg, Nemesis, and James Marcus, as we all know. Mm-hmm. They asked, "Did you ever have any contact with Claire O'Connor, Angus Wakeot?" Outside of the recording studio. Thank you, George, for saying it earlier. <laughs> um, yeah, 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 as I mentioned, yeah. <laughs> uh, I became kind of friends with Claire after that, and we we, we didn't hang out very much. But we'd run into each other once in a while in different studios and in different social settings. And she's always funny, and that was our inside joke. We would always be um, those characters everywhere we went. And we met each other, and it was uh, yeah, it was great. I and mean, she's a wonderful lady, and I, I think she's still in Tokyo. I think she still lives there. And still doing voice acting, but I'm not sure 100%. Angus, however, I you know I've never met him. Uh, well, actually, no, that's not true. I have met him. I haven't hung out with him before outside of the studio. That's all. You should have. Yeah, we should have more chance to talk to these people. Um, you know, it's um, I met I met a lot of lovely people in Tokyo, and um, yeah, I have great great memories of Tokyo, and I'm actually going back tomorrow, so maybe I'll run into him. Is he still there in Tokyo? Uh, no, well, he, he, he was. You're right. He was there travel writing and doing photography mm-hmm. and translations. He's now based, and unfortunately, this is why I managed to get my, my, my claws on him. He lives, he lives in England, not too far from my city. <laughs> <laughs> That's classic. That's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next question is from Star's Tyrant. Many in the biohazard community are always fascinated by deleted content. Can you remember any substantial that never made the game? Uh, you know, I'm sorry, I can't. It's been so long. Uh, I don't remember if anything's been deleted. So I don't think I can answer that one accurately. If you play the game and leave the English subtitles on, the subtitles for the dialogue don't match up accurately with the with the voice dialogue sometimes only minor little subtle differences and and sometimes actually with one particular line uh, that that morpheus voices almost quite significantly so i I wasn't sure if this is something you were aware of or if you were if you knew why Hmm. no i wasn't aware of that actually um no, I'm I'm just not sure how how or why that happened Hmm. why anybody didn't catch that seems like a maybe it was just an oversight i'm not sure I noticed that too when I was playing the game. I could never understand why they did that. Hmm. It could, yeah, it really could just be an oversight, you know, um, or whoever. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I can't tell you. 
All right, moving on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> George Trevor asks, any peculiar eccentric lines of dialogue thrown up due to mistranslation issues? Ooh, that's a tough question to ask as well. I don't really know if I know the answer to that. Uh, I know that there was some, there were grammatical issues in the, in the original dialogue and uh, that I sort of helped them to correct some of those um, grammatical issues. <laughs> and uh, yeah. One of the, the burdens of the Resident Evil voice actors is this sometimes this, this B movie style, almost quite you know eccentric dialogue that we don't really know sometimes has it, whether it's purposeful and tongue in cheek with regard to Capone, <laughs> or whether it is just simply down to appalling grammar. And, and I think you may have answered the question there, Raj. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a bit of both. Because the grammar is appalling, we start, I think the voice actors try to make it tongue in cheek. <laughs> so I think I think it's a little bit of both of that, you know. Sometimes you get these scripts, and you go like, "Oh my God, what's this all about?" And then you know, and then and then you you actually just literally correct it as you go along. You don't want to insult anybody, and you know, you kind of make fun of it a little bit, poke a little bit, poke fun at it a little bit, and you yeah. make it a bit tongue and tongue in cheek. So I think there's a bit of both of that in there, you know, with that situation. <laughs> <laughs> Missiles are below this room. We don't have much time. Let's go. Morpheus! Go, go, go! and Elder, I'll ask this question to you. Mm-hmm. Your voice character, Bruce McGyvern, has been abandoned in what is fashionably called Forgotten Character Island, with fan <laughs> favorites such as Barry Burton, who might be appearing soon, Rebecca Chambers, Ark Thompson, Carlos Oliveira, and Hunk, among many others. If Capcom decided to send a ship called Resident Evil 7 so Bruce could leave the infamous island, would you come back with it? Oh, that's a really good question. You know what? I think so. Yes, I'd come back with it. I would. I would love to be involved. You know, um, I don't know what the status is with Capcom nowadays. I'm not sure. I've heard that they they are in some trouble at that mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. So I don't know if they will be doing anything. But you know, if I had if I had the opportunity, yes, I'd definitely. I'd love to. I'd love to get the Bruce McGiven character out again and uh, mm-hmm. do another 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 um another show with mm-hmm. them so it'd be great another game with them so if i had the opportunity yes absolutely i'd jump on it just have to get him off that inflatable with fong ling <laughs> yeah yeah we're having such a good time we're just gonna stay out there on that inflatable oh that's the next question yeah 
Zarl's asked this. In the uh, ending where Fling and Bruce are kissing, she rejects uh-huh. him to go into the United States. How would you imagine your character after 10 years? Oh, well, you know, I imagine him, um, he got, he's remarried. He's remarried an Asian girl, and he's, uh, he's living in the U.S. Uh, under a different name. Under, he's, a, he's a covert operative living in the U.S., and uh, he's somewhere on the West Coast. And, uh, yeah, he's waiting for his next mission. That, that's what I imagine him doing right now. Working against BOWs or working with the original 11 of the BSAA? Well, I can't really say anything. He's a covert operative, right? <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> He's hidden. He's somewhere hiding out. All right, that's the end my questions. We're moving on to Albert Wesker 187. This is Albert Wesker 187. I'm here with Raj Rahman again. It's an honor to meet you, sir. I mean, a pleasure to meet you. But I have a few questions from a couple of the people. Out of the entire recording, what was your favorite line? My favorite line. Um, you know, I, it, I, you know, what? I like the first line in the whole thing. You know, Raccoon City, a midwestern town in the United States. <laughs> that always cracks me up. It's always a great line. It just, it just sets the whole tone for the whole, the whole, uh, the whole game. It's time for you to let go. <laughs> <laughs> That's Bruce's last line, isn't it? No, Bruce's last line is sorry, but my dance card's already full. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I changed my mind. That's my favorite line the whole show. <laughs> I'm changing my mind now. That's that's my favorite line. It's time for you to let go. Sorry, but my dance card is full. In terms of you being the character of Bruce McGiven and the, mm-hmm. the fact that you come in with that narration at the beginning in, in Bruce's voice, I thought it worked well in the sense that it almost seemed detached from that character, almost as if it was a, a neutral narrator doing the narration. But was that actually discussed, whether you would do it in a different voice to Bruce's? Um, no, it wasn't really discussed. I think, uh, I, I, you know, I don't, you know, I think it wasn't really discussed. It was just the way things turned out. As I said, most things just happened organically throughout okay. the whole thing. Well, the next question is from Wesker 101 and Ray Redfield, and it asks, do you think Dead Aim got the recognition it deserved? You know, I don't think it did. I think, um, I think that it, it was kind of downplayed in a, to a large degree. Um, so I, you know, I'm happy to hear that there are people still interested in it, but I, I think it would, um, I, I think as George was saying there, it, it was, it, it had a, a certain kind of charm to it that, um, wasn't widely recognized. Does it, do you guys agree, agree with that? Yes, I agree with that. that. I agree yeah. with that too. I thought that was reflected in the reviews where there were quite a few very sort of lazy generic reviews that gave it a six and a half out of 10 which is very easy if, if you don't actually use any imagination and, and really try to connect with the game. And then you will get where you can see a reviewer really got the game and really understood the game, where out of the blue, you'll get sort of a 9 out of 10. I was looking at the Metacritic scores, and what's quite unusual for, for Dead Aim, you'd have like a group of reviews around the 6, 7s out of 10, and then just occasionally the sporadic 9 out of 10, and you, and you knew that the reviewer really got the game. And the fact that we're all talking about it years later. I like the fact also that there is actually a romantic relationship between... Bruce and Fong Ling, you don't really see that very much in other Resident Evil games. There's tension between some characters, but what, what happened between those two does not ha- has not happened in any Resident Evil game. Well, there's, there's a couple of James Bond themes in... in uh, you know, we've, I've yeah. always said that I felt Morpheus Duval is the 
perfect James Bond villain, particularly in terms of his his dastardly plan for the world. And that's very much a James Bond ending, isn't it? I, that's that's you get to play Roger Moore, I think, there at the end. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it really does have a James Bond sort of um, vibe to it. There's a lot of that in there, definitely. I have another question. This is also from Exarrows, and it says. You also have done voice acting in Bloody Roar 4 and Shinmunu 2, but it seems like in the last decade you are 100% focused on your music. Do you plan to come back to voice acting? You know, um, I guess to the Western world, I have, I've stopped voice acting, I think, but you know, to a large degree, I, I kept voice acting in Japan up until about two years ago. On, on, I was on several different TV shows, as I mentioned, and uh, so I, I continued voice acting. But um, I think music has been a big, has been a very big part of my life, obviously. And so I, I do a lot of music work, and I haven't abandoned voice acting. I'm actually about to get back into voice acting again. I've just been offered some, some uh, characters and some new anime from coming out of Japan. And a few game, people from a few different games have actually contacted me about voice acting. So I'm actually going to start getting back into doing more voice acting for the Western world again in, in L.A. and also down in, in uh, Texas. So I'll probably be back again doing more voice acting. I, I realize now that, you know, the music, I love the music uh, end of things, of course. That's my, that's my passion. But I love voice acting as well. So I'm going to bring those two together and you'll probably start seeing me uh, in 2015 and more productions coming out. So... Peter's wow. field. Yes. That's very exciting. That's awesome. I'm very glad to hear that as well on my part as well. Very happy to hear that. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Well, here's another question. This is from Nemesis, and it specifies, what is your favorite passion, music or acting? You know, I love both of them. I would say I love them both uh, equally so. I think I started off with music, and I didn't realize that um, there was something for me in the voice acting world, and I got involved with it, and I realized, you know, it goes hand-in-hand hand with music. It really does, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I'm playing in, I think I'm, um, George mentioned this, might mention I'm playing in um, uh, Detroit um, for Halloween, and uh, I think I'll be having some of my voice actor friends join me on stage. I had, um, I don't know if you guys know Mary Elizabeth McGlynn. And, or, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yes, very well known. Steve, Steve Bloom. Do you know Steve Bloom as well? Steve Bloom as well, yes. The one yeah. that does the voice yeah. of the Yeah, yeah I think, you know, they joined me on stage at Nokia Theatre back in, in, in August at, for Anime Expo. And, um, you know, I'm hoping they'll join me again in Detroit, you know, for a few songs and stage. And we're all good friends. So it's like the, the voice actors and musicians all kind of intermingle. And, you know, voice actors are often musicians and musicians are often voice actors. So I think um, I love both of them equally. And um, I'd like to bring out more of the voice acting, as I said, and combine it with the music and, and get more of the voice actors <laughs> coming out and performing with me as well, because I think they're fabulous singers. Mary Elizabeth sings with Silent Hill with Akira Yamaoka, right? Yeah, she's on that sang. Yeah. Uh, she, she sang the song, The Room of Angels. She sang the song, incredible. Right. Yeah, so, you know, there you go. It's, it's, I think those things go really hand in hand. And so, yeah, hopefully we'll be getting out and doing more of that next year in 2015. Is that Yumacon Expo that you're referring to there, Raj? Yes, yeah. yeah because we'll, we'll be linking to that event at the website and we'll be putting all, all the relevant links and all the relevant times that you're showing what you're doing. All our listeners of the podcast will be able to find that out at the site. And they'll know exactly where to find you. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now we will be talking about the unreleased track Heroes Never Die and uh, Roger and I will be talking about what, what made this song come about. So I'll leave it up to him. Raj, talk about the song, how it came about and everything about it. 
Um, well, it's a, it's a collaborative effort between myself and, and uh, Sano DG, uh, the musical director for um, uh, Resident Evil. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was something that kind of grew organically like most of the show did. Um, we had some ideas, he had some beats and some ideas. And the studio, a studio in, I believe it was in, in uh, Meguro in Tokyo, uh, one night. And uh, we just, um, you know, uh, put it together. Um, it, it came quite quickly and um, naturally. And we'd finished all of the, the voice recording already. And it was uh, something that we both really wanted to do together. And we really enjoyed each other's company, and we'd, we'd had a beer, and we went to a pub, and we talked about it a little bit. And then we decided, yes, we're going to do it. And we, uh, we booked the studio, and we jumped in there and, and uh, just basically um, let things happen naturally. We didn't, we didn't plan out too much. And uh, as we went along, we found that you know, we, we had the vibe of the actual game in our minds already. And we've been working on it for so long that we felt that you know, we'd, we'd brought in the right uh, atmosphere to the song as well. And, uh, and uh, I think we're pretty happy with the whole process and also with the final product. I would have to say I agree with that because it's a really wonderful song. I mean, it was outstanding. That's why, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you were able to release it and everything. But now that we're on that, now I'll go back to asking you some of the questions regarding this theme as well. And these questions were submitted by AVP Ryu, USS Command, and M. Greg. You told me you already told me what was the inspiration for the lyrics, right? So my next, the next part of the question asks, how long did it take for the song to be written? Um, you know, I think the song just took a few days actually to come together. It really didn't take that long. Uh, I think that um, there was a certain, uh, the visuals have a certain ambiance and um, it, se it seemed obvious what would have to be done for the song and uh, the, the, the sort of um, ambient, surreal kind of in, uh, feeling for the song uh, really matches the whole visuals of the whole game. So just a couple of days, the whole thing came together and as I mentioned, it was very natural. Hearing you say that is both a joy and a pain at the same time because you get because you can hear. Of course, you know exactly. You're, you're you're a professional at the top of his game that knows exactly what's involved and what he has to produce. You produce something that matched contextually the game exactly as you just said, word for word. And then, and what a shame! What a missed opportunity. Yeah, it it, it is a shame. I mean, now we're obviously disappointed with with their choice. Um, but you know, sometimes uh, with well, obviously, often with 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 um, commercial productions like games or anime or or what what have you, um, they have to you know take into account business deals. So <laughs> you know, it's not always about the about the what fits. It's sometimes it's about mm -hmm. what makes you know makes financial sense. Unfortunately. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear people enjoy the song. I mean, I wish it had been part of the, the actual production, but it still exists, and that's the important thing. We can listen to it now and enjoy it. Yeah. And this is also part of the first question I asked, and were there any differences in the original lyrics of the song compared to the final version? No. I think the lyrics came quite naturally and fast, so no. No changes at all. Now, this next question, which I think is probably the best question anybody could have asked, yeah. asks... Does this song, Heroes Never Die, explore a romantic aspect in the relationship between Bruce and Fong Ling? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound of that. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't want her hero to die, does she? No. So. <laughs> The government seems to care an awful lot about where you are. Not even their best agent, which makes you 
expendable. What are you going to do? I'll continue my mission. Morpheus will live up to his end of the deal, even if we pay. But the people of China are still in danger. Oh, and since you saved me this time, I think I should say thanks. Don't mention I'm a Donghua after all. And as for my final question that was that was submitted as well, it saw it says your song was replaced by Rice's song Gunshot. Why was this chosen? Um, once again, I think that was a that was a business decision. Uh, Rise were becoming uh, a big band at the time in Japan, and um, you know there was there was you know definitely some some involvement with the, with their label and Capcom, and um, you know yeah those things just happen. I mean it's happened. Uh, I mean I've I've written songs for several people in Japan, and you know um, sometimes the, the band becomes big and the songs are taken everywhere and they're on TV commercials and movies and everywhere and sometimes the band doesn't quite connect and I think at that moment Rise were on the way up mm. and uh, it was a business decision by Capcom and that's really all it, all it comes down to uh, whether or not it fits the show I mean that's up to you you the fans to, to tell me that but uh, I, I know for a fact it was a business decision at the time how do you feel about your original work being so unceremoniously substituted at such a large state and with presumably no notice? Well, obviously we're very disappointed with this situation. Uh, it was it was a real shocker, actually. But, um, you know, on the other hand, um, I had a lot of involvement with it as a voice actor and uh, I had a contribution to it. And the song was, you know, you know, in a way it's, it's, it's a hidden a hidden sort of, a piece of the show that adds more mystique to the show, so I can look at it that way and keep keep it positive. <laughs> well, it, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's, I mean, that's that, that's a great positive attitude, but also it it did make it into the game in in some form because I'm not sure if you're aware the save room music, which is always very yeah, iconic, it was part of right? that one. Yeah, it was part of that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I I realized that part. The 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 interesting uh, thing was that you know that not the whole song was added in. Where it could I think it could have been added in somehow or other. You know, it could have been put in some way. But you know, it, it, I think that yeah, at least some of it, you know, exists in the, in the show. And heroes never die in that room either, right? Exactly, <laughs> that's true. That's very true. <laughs> Ironically, at the launch party, the private launch party, they played the song, and then that's when they told me that it won't make it to the final final product. <laughs> but they, you know, they showed it to me at the launch party. I was like, okay, so why are you showing yeah. it to the launch party just to tell me it's not coming out in the final project? And yeah, but you know that's that. I think that was their apology, you know, for the situation. Their way of apologizing. Um, hey, you can, yeah, you can see it here at the launch party. <laughs> strange way to apologize. <laughs> it is very strange, but you know, if you live in Japan long enough, these kinds of things become normal. <laughs> a lot of yeah, I'm very. It's a very unusual place, and a lot of interesting, you know, twists everything over there. So I'm grateful that I've I've been a part of the show, and you know that to me that's that's the most important thing that I'm still there mm. as part of the show, and I will always be a part of the show. And you know, as I mentioned, the song still exists. You know, it's it's still out there. And, you know, it's uh, it's still a part of you know whether people want to acknowledge it or not. It's still part of the show too. So I'm I'm I can say I'm happy with this situation at least. 50% of what I did is there. As an exclusive for the site, and it's, a, it's the biggest privilege we've had since 2011 when the Crimson Head Order was first constructed. 
we're going oh. to be lucky enough to play that to the community uh, at the end of this podcast. Okay, fantastic. I mean, I hope people enjoy it. That's the most important thing. That, that's the only important thing, that people enjoy it. And those are all my questions for me. Now I'm going to send over to USS Command. Howdy. My questions are just, you know, little questions that didn't fit anywhere else. So, yeah. They're just as important. Oh, my word. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, before I do ask one, I do want to add on that, uh, that like, the, like uh, the others have said, that theme, Heroes Never Die, is great. Dead Aim is my favorite Resident Evil game, and it means a lot to me. And every time I hear it, like, all that comes back to me at once. So it's wonderful. It really is. It needs to be out there more. Anyway, the first uh, question is, do you like sci-fi and or horror movies? I'm a big fan of sci-fi, actually. Uh, I like horror, but I could say that I'm a huge sci-fi fan. I'm a big Trekkie. Oh, I am too. uh, Yeah, I'm a huge Trekkie. (laughs) Yeah, and so I'm a big sci-fi fan. I actually, I live live next to Skywalker Ranch. My, I'm just li- literally down the street, and my son's name is Luke Sky Ramaya. I was going to name him Luke Skywalker Ramaya, but my wife made me go just for Sky. <laughs> she had to get the She wouldn't let me go too far with that. She actually yeah. said, no, 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 no. It's going to be Luke Sky, not Luke Skywalker Ramaya. Uh, well, Luke Sky is a beautiful no. name, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that shows you how much of a hardcore sci-fi guy yeah. I am. So. Wow. <laughs> uh, what upcoming projects are you involved with that we should look for uh i'm involved with several upcoming projects um i can't really say anything unfortunately right now because i have to sign these called non-disclosure agreements i'm just imagining whether one of those ndas has got the words biohazard or resident evil at the <laughs> oh, I, no not yet nothing like that yet i really hope something like that pops up um as i mentioned i'm, I'm working with, with several different companies right now and mm. um I'm I'm involved with several different artists, as you know, from the guys from Crush Forty, from Sonic the Hedgehog to, mm-hmm. you know, Silent Hill, and and also some of the people from uh, some anime, some new anime that are coming out. And uh, I'm going back to Tokyo tomorrow uh, in order to discuss a couple of uh, pro- meetings for a couple of projects as well mm-hmm. for some Japanese companies. So when I know more, I will uh, I'll definitely let you guys know what's going on, or I'll just surprise you, and you'll see it out there sometime. But uh, yeah, a lot a lot of great stuff. Uh, I've um. You know, I'm really getting back into full swing again. I, I, I took a little bit of a breather when I had uh, some kids, and I didn't, I wasn't as involved as I, as I, I, I would like to be. And I just took a little bit of time to spend time with my kids. But I'm back in the industry again now, and I'm, I'm flying out regularly to do shot jobs. And uh, yeah, I'm bouncing all over the place, as you know. Uh, so there should be a lot of cool stuff coming up in 2015 for sure. I can say, I can tell you one thing. I'm meeting Akira Yamaoka on Saturday for dinner. Mm. We have a meet. We have a dinner meet. I can tell you that. <laughs> That's about all I can tell you right now. And him and his manager. So um, yeah, let's see. You know, you never know. Uh, we're all we're all friends. We're definitely going to be doing some shows together. I can tell you that. Uh, I just finished some shows with Crush Forty from Sonic the Hedgehog this weekend, and I'll be doing some shows with uh, Yamaoka-san um, in, in 2015. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna have be having a dinner with them. I think Saturday night. Yeah, it looks like Saturday night. So. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll let you know when I know. Looks like we accomplished our mission. Finally, come with me to America. There's nothing left for you in China. No, I'm going home. 
I belong to China. Tong Gua, I'm truly an idiot after all. You know what it really means? I've been in your country once. That was not in your dossier. those residents of Crimson Head Elder possessing a special mansion key, Grady will escort you back up to room 237 for a special Halloween treat 
gifted to the Crimson Head Elder podcast, courtesy of Jill Valentine actress Michelle Ruff, who exclusively reads in character as Jill Valentine from the official Resident Evil 3 Jill's Diary. August 7th. Two weeks have passed since that day. My wounds have been healed. I just can't forget it. For most people, it's history now. But for me, whenever I close my eyes, it all comes back clearly. Zombies eating people's flesh. The screams of my teammates dying. Wounds in my heart are not healed yet. August 13th. Chris has been causing a lot of trouble recently. What's with him? He seldom talks to the other police members and is constantly irritated. The other day, he punched Alrin of the boys' crime department just for accidentally splashing Chris's face with coffee. I immediately stopped Chris, but... When he saw me, he just gave me a wink and walked away. I wonder what happened to him. August 15th, midnight. Chris, who has been on a leave of absence for a vacation, called me, so I visited his apartment. As soon as I walked into his room, he showed me a couple of pieces of paper. They were part of a virus research report entitled simply as G. Chris told me that the nightmare still continues. He went on to say that it's not over yet. Ever since that day, he's been fighting all by himself without rest, without even telling me. August 24th. Chris left the town today to go to Europe. Barry told me that he would send his family to Canada, and then he would follow Chris. I decided to remain in Raccoon City for a while because I know that the research facility in this city will be very important to this entire case. In a month or so, I'll be joining with them somewhere in Europe. That's when my real battle begins. Welcome back to the Overlook Hotel. We have just put on display a collection of Dead Aim reviews from 2003, a rarity to find in such immaculate condition. Residents wishing to take this high-resolution memento may retire to Crimson Head Elder's media section. Additional Dead Aim features at the site can be found in our Resident Evil articles and our translation sections, including an extensive research article, also our exclusive translation of the now offline Biohazard Heroes Never Die official site, which includes the only complete translation of the scenario and developer commentary. And finally, some exclusive extractions without watermark from the Biohazard Heroes Never Die trial disc. Live and direct from Universal Studios in Japan, 
We have Crimson Head Elders on the Spot News Reporter, The Selfish Gene, reviewing for us on location, the Scream Park attraction, Biohazard, The Real 2. I'm hearing he just exited the ride, so I'll now hand you over to our man in Japan for a live audio review. So my friend Steve and I just got off the Biohazard The Real 2 attraction at Universal Studios Japan. I've got to say, as a long time Biohazard fan, I was really, really impressed. It's like Time Crisis. You're, you're in a group of like 12 people, you've got a shotgun each. Um, there's sort of a row of LEDs on the top for your health, which is yeah, green or red. I think you've got about 8 bars maybe, and you've got 30 shots. And so you go in yeah, with your group of about 12, but you're rushed through a series of rooms by UBCS dressed soldier staff and then zombies pop out to attack uh, intermittently and you shoot them and then you move from room to room and so in some parts the attendant in that room will be attacked by the monster and then you've got to you got to rush off to the next part um, yeah so you sort of go through the streets and then there's bigger areas where you can restock your ammo uh, you get health from green herbs, like a little light that you shoot at to, to restock your health, which is pretty great. Like at the end of the street section, there's a, a giant nemesis costume who's got a you know big Gatling gun that, that shoots people. So it takes a bit from the movies, but it's really good. There's a few liquors, and they're crawling on top of things and across the floor. You know, really good looking costumes. And you carry on a bit further, and then you get into the the labs, and so in there. Uh, there's naked zombies, which is really, really, really good attention to detail to the games. Oh, so, like, you start in in Gunshop Kendo, and I mean, it's not the same layout as the game, but it's like the street section takes a lot of cues from the game, which is really good. And then you go through the labs, and then there's a tyrant that comes out of its case, and then you can't kill that, you just sort of shoot it, run out, you pull to the next area, and then in the finale bit of the labs, there's Mr. X and heaps of zombies and then Mr. X turns into Super Tyrant and chases you out of the room. And then of about the 12 people in our group, all but one died, uh, so we all ran out of health. And we, you go into an incinerator, which sort of blasts hot air at you and fire, plays on the screens around you and scares the shit out of you and says, you are dead. And one person gets the cure, and that's the end of the ride. Um, yeah, it was really good. A lot of attention to detail. Good, good for fans of the games, yeah. Definitely, definitely glad I went. And we're going to go again. And that concludes this evening's presentation of the Crimson Head Elder podcast, a Resident Evil Dead Aim Halloween special, hosted at the Overlook Hotel. Oh, it appears you failed to return to your rooms before midnight and the hotel entrance is now locked shut. You may not enter till morning and will have to find refuge from your current location. From the sounds of things, you're in the marshalling yard. Alone. Vulnerable. Isolated. SAA received intel as to the whereabouts of Umbrella's founder. 
I'd rather starve to death in here than be eaten by one of those undead monsters!